Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time, some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Defending a Serial Killer In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. I think it's safe to say that most of you are familiar with that opening to the very successful TV show Law and Order. But the defense attorney is an equally essential party in the criminal justice system. It's funny. When we are accused of a crime, rightly or wrongly, we want an attorney to protect our rights. But what about a serial killer? What are their rights? Do they have any? One attorney who believed a serial killer has an equal right to counsel is Jim Potts, who chronicled his moral and ethical conflict in his book, Defending a Serial Killer, and joins us now on Murder Most Foul. Welcome, Jim. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So the subject of your book, Defending a Serial Killer, is serial killer Michael D. Madsen. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Michael Madsen? The, well, first of all, uh, Michael Madsen came from a very uh, bad background, I guess is a good way to put it. He um, was raised by a stepfather uh, who was very abusive toward him and his mother. Um, he had uh, some issues with drugs at a very young age and drinking, by the way, and some, and some other issues that, that were personality flaws, so to speak, as the, uh, the doctor said at his trial. The, 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 uh, we'll get more into Madsen in a bit, but the, the area of concern uh, where he was doing his, his uh, kidnapping, raping and murdering of these girls was Southern California. And he, his final crime was actually in Nevada, and that's where he got caught. So when you look at him in terms of what he was doing, just to bring some of the, the listeners back in time, it was around the same time as the Hillside Strangling killings. And there was a, there was a thought that possibly he was involved in some of those as well. But it, it turned out not to be that, of course. So he was masking some of the things that he was doing under some other events that were going on during the same time. Now, this is, again, for the, for the listeners, this is late 70s, middle 70s? Correct. We do have to, for the, the purpose of, of uh, this story of defending a serial killer, um, this is serial and it is horrendous. It is brutal with young girls. Well, um, what he did was he kidnapped them, he raped them, he sodomized them, and he murdered them is what he did. I mean, there's no, there's no pretty way, unfortunately, to be able to put that. The youngest victim was nine years of age. You know, and, and part of it was, you know, he was a, a pretty good looking guy in his own respect. So he kind of lured these women in. I mean, the nine year old 
uh, as the book talks about, he, he basically approached her. She was at uh, one of those community pools and she was upset uh, because she wanted to go home. Her sister was there. Her sister didn't want to go yet. Uh, he was parked outside, saw some things going on and kind of offered her a ride home is what happened. And quite frankly, a number of these situations uh, with Macedonian girls, well, they were hitchhikers. And you know, how many times do our parents tell people don't hitchhike? And that's how they became, quite frankly, that's how they basically became victims. He lured them in. The, the, the reason he was caught is because what happened was after his last victim in California, he actually didn't kill the individual. She actually pleaded for her life. And it was the one time when he decided not to kill her. I mean, she was pleading not to kill me, not to kill me. And he ends up actually dropping her off Well, after, you know, around the corner from a, from a friend of hers house. Well, what happened with that was that, you know, I'm going to back up for a second. When he, uh, early on, when he was uh, convicted in Oregon, what did he do? He ended up kidnapping, you know, and raping a young lady and he didn't kill her. She came back later on to testify against him. And then when he was in prison, he swore to himself that in the future he would kill all of his victims so that they couldn't come back and testify against him, which is what he did with the exception of this last one, who, by the way, ended up testifying against him. But he let her go. Well, he recognized that as being a mistake. So what he did, he basically fleed. He left the state and went to Nevada. When he got to Nevada, he was actually heading to his grandparents' house in Cherry Creek. And what happened was he, he ran out. He didn't have any money. He, he was running out of gas. And basically, he went to the community college there and waited and observed at night a student coming out. And basically, he had a gun, but the gun was a fake gun. So people don't realize at night... Any gun, can, I mean, any you can have a gun that's a, that's a fake gun, you know, but at night they all look real. And uh, basically he forced her into the car and into her car. So he needed money. He needed gas. So he forced her. He took her out and raped her and then went back to a gas station. And when he went back to the gas station, because, uh, he, again, he still needed gas. She then was able to escape because she had used her card in order to be able to, you know, a credit card to get to get the gas. During that process, she escaped and ran inside and they called the police. So he once again, he took off. He got caught. It was it was it was very strange. He didn't get caught on the run itself. What happened was he ended up driving up to his grandparents house. This is from North Las Vegas to Cherry Creek. And he ended up driving up there to visit his grandparents. They didn't know anything. So he goes in there and he basically goes to sleep on the back end. What was going on was that when they called the police officer, uh, detective Pat Dingle responded to the call, found his car there and basically ran the plates. Well, when they ran the plates on the car at that point, it went out. It went out over the air because, you know, the teletype, the thing when police officers put something out there. Well, what happened was. Um, the sheriff up in that area recognized the last name and said, you know what, Sheriff Robinson, you know what? There's some Matsons that live up by Cherry Creek. And he literally just got in his, in his unit and he drove to Cherry Creek. He knocks on the door. 
It says, uh, you know, by any chance, you know, a Michael D. Matson. And they said, well, yeah, that's our grandson. He said, well, do you know where I can find him? Well, yeah, he's inside sleeping. That's how they caught him. So he comes to the door, still with the sleep in, the, sleep in his eye. And they said, Michael D. Matson, yeah, you're under arrest. That's exactly how it happened. And they transported him back to their local station. And then they contacted Pat Dingle to tell him, hey, we've got your boy in custody, basically. And they drove up from North Las Vegas to Cherry Creek to, uh, you know, to arrest him and bring him back to North Las Vegas for that crime with the, end of, with the, with the uh, co-ed student at that point. They read him his rights there. And he told him that he wanted to talk to an attorney. So in the hours that it took to drive from Cherry Creek back to North Las Vegas, they were in the vehicle with him. Now, he had already said that he wanted to talk to an attorney. That, at that point, his constitutional rights kicked in. But Pat would tell me, Pat Dingle would tell me later on that as soon as he saw this person, he just recognized him as, poor, as pure evil. And later on, it was divulged to me that on the whole ride back, he actually had his gun in Matson's mouth on the way back. When they got back to the station, you know, Matson again said he wanted to talk to an attorney. All right. So now he's incarcerated. They have him there. And basically, when it went out on the teletype, L.A. picked up on it and they thought that Matson may have been a part of the Hillside Strangler cases, et cetera. So they came out to make a long story short, but they recognized it wasn't really him that was involved in those crimes. Now. Pat recognized that, wait a minute, this guy is somebody more than I just thought that he was locally. So he basically just started wooing and cooing him, basically. He would call him in, he would, they would sit down. And I'm just giving you a really, just, a, just an overview here. Yep. But he would sit down with him and he lured him into a false sense of uh, comfort level. Let's just put it that way. So he would give him coffee, you know, cigarettes. They get to know each other. And meanwhile, he starts extracting information from him. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department wanted to, wanted to talk to him because LAPD ruled him out as a suspect for the Hillside Triangle cases. But the L.A. County Sheriff's Department had a couple of things on their desk that were unsolved, that were recent. That's what happened. And, and he fit the profile. So what happened was they went out to go talk to him. So when they went out to go talk to him, he basically opened up because, again, he has Pat with them. He's feeling very comfortable. He basically opened up to them and told them about his involvement in these killings. And there we had our confession. So that's how that part started everything. So now he was still there because he was still in custody because he was in Nevada. So now Pat is really getting into this. He's pulling things out of him. He's talking to him. And basically, he's violating his right to counsel every which way. Uh, he was entitled to a public defender. Um, they had a lineup with the, with the lady from uh, Nevada. At the lineup, they had a public defender go out there, but he wasn't representing him. He was just there. So they looked at, it, okay, lineup, okay, you know, fine. She picks him out, end of story. So he really didn't end up having an attorney until the process moved along a little bit further. 
when the L.A. County Sheriff's Department came out, his public defender at that time was aware that they were there because they informed him that they were going to be there, but they never came to where he was being interrogated. And, and you know, you know, that's a no-no. He, they, he's got to be there. So you could, you could see how is what was developing here was they were treading on his rights. And it wasn't so much L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I want to make that clear. It was more Pat Dingle, who, who, who actually, to be honest with you, he and I became friends in the process of writing the book and all of this. And, you know, when I met him and everything. Um, so I had some in-depth conversations with him about all of this. It was a very interesting guy. He has since passed away. So at any rate, that's how it all started developing. Now, once they had him, he eventually got extradited back to the back to uh, the Los Angeles area. When that happened, he actually ended up being convicted. Trial court got a conviction. You know, the confession issue, you know, came up, obviously, and the jury convicted him. All right. So that gives you a brief overview. So he's convicted and 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 given the death penalty. He's convicted. He's given the death penalty. Now, what happened was Ron Smith who was my professor in law school, contacted me and said, hey, Jim, I just got appointed by Justice Rose Bird, uh, and she was of the California Supreme Court, for those who don't know. And any time that you get the death penalty in California, it's an automatic appeal to the California Supreme Court. Well, Ron was doing death penalty appeals on the side, all right, besides, you know, besides teaching. So he contacted me and said, hey, I got this case. I was just appointed by Justice Rose Bird to handle a death penalty case. Would you be interested in helping me with it? Well, now, as a law student, you tell me you want to jump right into middle, of, you know, to the middle of that. It was like, yeah, without knowing all of the facts. So I was excited that he even asked me. I was excited about the opportunity. Well, there was about 4000 pages of, of uh, transcripts and exhibits. And, you know, when I finally got those, I'm going through all of this. And now I'm starting to learn in detail what he had done. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, killing a nine-year-old girl, raping, sodomizing these girls, etc. I mean, right away, you know, I was placed in a moral dilemma because everything that I'm reading about him, and by that time, I'd also read the report from his doctor, you know, the psychiatrist that was appointed by the court to find out about his background, etc. This was all contrary to who I was. I mean, I, I was an Eagle Scout. I was an altar boy went to all Catholic schools. I mean, you know, come on, this guy wasn't anything like I was. And to even think about trying to assist somebody like that with my moral values versus his, his moral values, I began to have some doubts, you know, as to uh, my participation in this. Now, now and, let, and let's, again, be clear for the listeners, too, that, as you mentioned, you are a law student. You right. aren't a hardened lawyer who's a public defender for 20 years, or a prosecutor for 30 to say, okay, I know this is the system and this is my job. You all of a sudden went, uh-oh. Right, exactly. And now adding to the problem was that my wife at that time was not happy about, once I had told her what this guy had done, you know, we she was not happy with me trying to work with somebody like this to get them out of prison when it involved kids because we were, we were she was pregnant at the time. And, and it was like, okay, why are you going to help somebody like this? So that struggle was there. So I had to make a decision. And it, what I thought to myself was that, okay, you know what? We live in a country that has the United States Constitution. And part of the Constitution with those amendments state that a person has a right to counsel. 
uh, no matter what crimes that they have that they've committed. Uh, you know, here I am learning, you know, how to become a lawyer. And in that process, you know, we have to do with ethics and, you know, and with ethics, you have to understand that the listeners have to understand is that you can't always just get out of a case just because you find the subject matter repugnant. So in essence, I said, okay, you know what, if I'm going to get into this industry, so to speak, this profession, then, you know, you have to separate out the emotional part of this and he's still entitled to representation, right, wrong, or indifferent, no matter what he's done. So I had to make the decision. So I went ahead and made the decision that I would participate, you know, with this. And, you know, again, I'm filtering through all of the information. And now I start to see where I think there's been some violations of his, of his rights, the right to counsel, as an example. And so I'm going through all of this and I finally meet with Ron when I'm, when I'm ready to meet with him so we can discuss this. And I go to Ron and I say, Ron, um, I, you know, hey, I finished and you know, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. So I go to Ron's office and Ron's all excited because he found an issue that would have, you know, it was the wrong jury instruction that have, would have reduced his penalty from the death penalty to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So now I'm thinking, okay, good, I'm off the hook. And then I thought, well, wait a second. You know, wait a second. It goes back to the same issue. You represent somebody to the best of your ability. Now, I don't know. I'm a law student, you know, and Ron was the head attorney, you know, and my professor. How do I tell him about this other issue that I found? Because maybe I'm wrong. So he, he could see that I wasn't overly excited by what he told me. He says, what's the problem? I said, well, I think I found another issue that might even get his conviction reversed. He says, what are you talking about? Well, you know, the right to counsel. And then I started laying it out to him and all of the details and, you know, things of that nature. And at first his reaction was one of rejection. No, 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 you're off base, this and that, this and that. But I argued it so much and presented enough facts to Ron that Ron thought, okay, you know what? I'll at least put it in the brief to the Supreme Court because you only get one hour to argue in front of the, in front of the Supreme Court. So he included it. So when it was actually time to argue the issue, you know, the, uh, the brief that Ron had submitted, he argued his issue for about the first 10 minutes. Then the California Supreme Court said, one of the justices said, wait a minute, Mr. Smith, there's a much bigger issue here than the wrong jury instruction for the last. So for the last 50 minutes, they, he argued my issue and they reversed his conviction uh, based upon, you know, the issues that I rose that I raised regarding the right to counsel. So uh, basically, um, Ron's argument about the charge uh, to the jury of uh, by the judge, the trial judge. Uh, so his point uh, accepted by the Supreme Court got Matson off death row, where um, your argument, which was underneath it, uh, they sort of that peak uh, peak their interest, and they decided that meant I'm sorry, the the whole trial has to be thrown out and he has to be retried. Right. Technically, although probably unlikely, he could be. Uh, Scott free and back right. on the street. That's right. So there's another little moral dilemma. Right. So what happened was, is that they did reverse. And of course, my heart sank a little bit because it still goes back to the same issue. Well, you did your job, but you're putting this person back out on the street. Well, what happened was, is that the district attorney at the time decided to retry him. So they retried him without the confession, without the confession. And they used 
uh, the, the, that lady, the young lady I told you about that came back and testified against him. Uh, so, so between that and the other facts that they were able to put together, he ended up being convicted again. So that was the good thing. So now he was back on death row. So I was very happy with that because I had done my job. They retried him because of the crimes that he committed. They didn't want this guy out on the street. So that, so to me, that part was a good thing from that perspective. So could you give us a little instruction on case law in the sense that the Fifth and Sixth Amendment is where we get Miranda from, but the whole list of you have the right to me, all, that's not in the Constitution anywhere. Am the I case, wrong? No, no. It was Miranda versus Arizona was the case. Okay, Miranda versus Arizona. And that's what established that you have to read, yet you have to read somebody their rights. So that wasn't initially in the Constitution. So that's why, you know, it, it goes back there. But the right to counsel, okay, is in, is, is in the uh, It's word for word in the... Right. But the, but the reading of the rights to an individual was Miranda versus Arizona. And in that case, they held that you have to read an individual's rights. Now, I will also tell you, Jim, that part of this problem was, again, Pat Dingle as a police officer. And I had a problem with this because of the fact that he continually violated these rights. He later disclosed to me because at the trial, because I read the trial transcripts, at the trial, he testified that he had continually read mass in his rights every time. Pat and I had a conversation about that after the fact, and he perjured himself. He told me he perjured himself, but he didn't care that he perjured himself because he wanted mass behind the bars. Now, that to me, again, is wrong. Police officers, to me, have a higher duty. When it comes to things like this, you've got to be straight laced with this all of across the board. We have enough issues with police officers looking bad to the general public, because, you know, recently everything that's been happening with police officers, et cetera. And those things, in my opinion, uh, don't go very well with the general public. So they have to do things the right way. Now, he did what he did based on emotions. And one of the things that I take, you know, that I, that I wanted, you know, the book to show was that you, the justice system can't be based on emotions. And I know that's hard to say. A jury can get inflamed because of things that they're saying. I get all of that. But if you start with the very basic premise of when a police officer makes arrest, makes a decision, et cetera, you've got to leave the emotions out of it, period. If you don't, then you violate that person's rights. And then what ends up happening is that they end up getting off like Matson did because of the fact that you let your emotions trip up the system. And as police officers, you cannot do that. And if you continue to do it, anything that, that, that comes out after that, you, you know, it's called the fruits of the poison tree. Anything that comes out after that, you can't use. So it's useless anyway. And quite frankly, they're entitled to have representation there because they could say something that, that could convict them later on. Well, and the other part of that, if you're um, my listeners, if you're ever brought into, I mean, I've said this to my daughter, I've said this, uh, and again, no offense to the, the police out there, but I said, no, you don't open your mouth. You, you call me, you'll find out. I mean, if it's your friend who something happened to, you just, I mean, so many horrible ones I've heard where people got in a, tied up in something that they clearly, they think they don't go to prison, but they get tied up because they did that. Because what they try to do, Jim, is that if you can find the issue away from 
the words that were spoken, that's good to go. That's what happened to Matson because they couldn't use his confession, but they were able to use her testimony and they were actually able to use investigative techniques to find things and things of that nature. That makes that makes a big difference. I want to go back to your daughter when you said that you tell your daughter not to say anything. See, that's good advice, period. It's not a question of whether or not they've done anything, but they could blurt something out. So remember something. If we roll up on a scene and we walk out there and we say, hey, what's going on? And you blurt out, I just stabbed this guy 20 times. <laughs> Wait, you know, we didn't have a chance to, to. We can use that because that was volunteered. You know, so that's why the when I was when I was in the academy, I told my boys, hey, guys, I told them the same thing. Just don't say anything. Just be cooperative. Go down with them. Right? And then and then, you know, I'll get involved and we'll get it straightened out. But don't say anything. We tell people don't say anything. But what happens, Jim, is that people sometimes emotionally at that scene may blurt something out because there's an emotional part of that. So anything that somebody says, you know, that the cop didn't ask and you blurt it out, they can they can use that. But they'll say, stop. Let me read you your rights. And as you pointed out, he or as we pointed out, it's it's in the book that he uh, was convicted and put on death row another time for in the second trial. Then that one technically, whenever it's so the death penalty was taken away and then reimposed in a new trial, uh, that he that had to be automatically appealed as well. Correct. So that did another appeal. Um, I'm assuming either he had I don't remember did in that case, did he have paid attorneys or were they? Oh, no, they were. They were he never had paid attorneys. Those, they but were it was private. It was a, 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 a public defenders. But but you guys were off the hook. Right. You didn't, get, you didn't get back into the lottery. We, we, no, no, no. <laughs> we did our job the first time. And the second time, of course, he lost on his appeal. Right? Because now there's no, no there's no confession. There's no this, there's no that. All the other business was, was basically gone. But, you know, he successfully uh, appealed. What people don't understand, they say, why does it take so long sometimes? The amount of appeals that these guys get. I mean, he appealed the fact that he had incompetent counsel. Uh, you know, the, you know, the second time around. So therefore, see, so that was appealed. And then you take it to the California appellate court. You take it to the California Supreme Court. And then after that, he could he could appeal that issue into the federal court system by saying that by, you know, uh, they're holding me illegally because this is what shouldn't have happened. So now those appeals just go on and on. And then he comes up with another issue. And now with that issue, he turns around and does the same thing. I mean, he actually ended up dying in prison. He never ended up paying the price, so to speak. But, you know, um, you know, toward the end of his life and these appeals and appearances in court, he was basically wheelchair bound. He was really, really sick. Um, he ends up dying and he ends up dying in prison, quite frankly. And he's buried out there by Cherry Creek, actually. Now, and as it's pointed out, and this was a uh, I'm confused about the states. This was this was California. Yeah. So but let me let me just tell you something, because you brought up Nevada and California. So think about it. How was it that they were able to get him from Nevada to be able to, you know, people have used have, have the word extradition. OK, how do you get him from Nevada to California? Let me tell you how we how, how it, it ended up going, because what had to happen was we had to be able to show that um, the violation of his rights occurred in Nevada by a Nevada police officer. And how is that going to be applied in the California courtroom? 
because it wasn't a California violation. So what we did, we were able to show that Pat Dingle became an agent of California because he was aware of the California law and that they wanted him here. And when these other agencies came out there, he was cooperating with them, which he should do. But he became an agent because he started questioning Matson on the issues in California. So we were able to show he became an agent. So that's how we of California. That's how we were able to uh, to tie it in and to bring it from Nevada to California. But the the, the that part of the extradition part, but the separate part of uh, like Miranda at that point, it didn't matter whether he committed a crime, committed a crime, the crime, the murder in California or Nevada. What uh, Pat Dingell did in Nevada is against the federal constitution. Is that correct? Well, you say federal constitution. That's not federal constitution. Is what that is is case law. It's federal case law. Okay, not the constitution. So what happened was is that that was the law of the land. So because of the fact that Miranda has to do with the, with the protection of their rights. It didn't matter what state that he was in from, from that perspective. It's, it was case law. So it's not United States constitutional law. So the confession was based on Miranda, which is, which is the case law, but the right to counsel is based on federal law. So when, when he, so when he confessed, it was a violation of his Miranda rights. So that's why you notice in the book, you got different cases and things of that nature. That's why, because it's based on case law, not the Constitution. But the right that was violated as a result of the violation of his case law rights. I love the fact and that 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 you were a policeman. And I think that uh, that when it came up in this discussion comes up in the book, too, it it's uh, it's an amazing uh, uh, melding of two things, not just being a lawyer, but being a lawyer who at that time was dealing with uh, a serial killer on the defense side. And yet you picked apart, rightfully so, because it was your job, what police were doing, specifically, a, you know, uh, an interrogator. Um, so in the book, it's clear when you talk to Pat, and there's a great scene in there where you're talking to him at the zoo, where he's now working at, at, at when he retires, he's working at a zoo. And clearly he had no no regrets. And I'm guessing for everything you say up up through your afterward, you have no regrets. Is, am I safe in saying that? Yeah. I mean, I don't have any regrets. I mean, I did my job. Okay, Pat, you know, and uh, Pat started that zoo, by the way. I mean, he was big on this, just to mention that. But uh, no, I didn't have any regrets. Uh, I, he didn't have any regrets either. As far as he was concerned, he did what he felt he had to do. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, we had no animosity. He, he, he fully understood you know, from that perspective. But I, I don't have any regrets about what we did on his behalf. Now, since uh, you and Ron were not trial attorneys uh, facing the media, again, uh, defending um, a serial killer at that stage, so uh, just doing a, an appeal in the background, you probably did not receive any uh, nasty mail or, or threats or anything like that, I'm, I'm assuming. Or nobody no. probably even knows what you did except for. Well, now it's a little late. It's a little too late now, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> defending a serial killer. <laughs> but up to that point, you're just and and I don't have to point it out, but I will that you uh, you then didn't stay in criminal law. Now, again, you're only a law student at that time. So you, you had everything in front of you. It's not like you quit being a public defender after this case, you were not a lawyer yet. So but what was your decision? Uh, did you just, I, I that was not a way to- I started, I, I stayed out of it. 
I stayed out of it. So what I do is is safely work with employers now <laughs> in, in employment law, you know, and, uh, you know, I've, I've enjoyed that as a career. I do a lot of public speaking on a lot of different issues. I'm also a certified terrorist investigator with the LA County Sheriff's Department. So I do a lot of public speaking on domestic terrorism and the impact on the workplace. I do a lot of that. I mean, I've trained over 40,000 people in active shooter training, you know, all across the country. Uh, so I have other interests and things of that nature. So I've enjoyed my career, you know, in different aspects of it, I guess. And, you know, I ended up becoming a police officer only because, and I did patrol the same community that I lived in. Uh, I became a police officer because I wanted there to be a certain amount of fairness out there. I wanted to be able to contribute to my community. I've always been a community-minded person, so. Great. Um now, do you have any uh, any books that people can get uh, on the on your uh, anti-terrorism work? Yeah, I have one. That's a that's a small one. It's uh, called Domestic Terrorism Safety Tips on how to be safe out there. That's on Amazon also, um, as well. So yes, I have done that. Well, Ron, I, I've got to say I'm really happy that I did find uh, defending a serial killer, the right to counsel, which I think popped up, uh, you know, on on Google or something, and it drew, drew my attention. Uh, it's a little different for murder most foul, but I think it uh, it was an important important topic to cover. The book is really out there. It was nominated. Um, maybe you found it because of the Bram Stoker Award. It was it was nominated uh, with the preliminary uh, list nomination for the Bram Stoker Award. And that whole genre has really put this book out there. So, so again, I want to thank you for joining. Is there anything you want to add in closing? Uh, well, the only point I want to, uh, yeah, just, just on the issue of emotions. As, as difficult as it is, I ask people out there to be careful with emotions. You hear things on the news, and the news will spotlight something and, 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 and build it up. But it, those are all emotional things. You have to wait until... A jury can hear everything that has happened and hold those emotions back until you have all of the facts, not the initial facts, because those are always just flamed by people's emotions and things of that nature. So we need to leave the emotions out of the judicial system, as difficult as that may be, because we want to make sure that everybody gets their fair day in court, that they get to be heard, that their defense team gets to put things out there that are fair and hold the emotions back until you have all of the details not the initial. I couldn't have said it better myself. So once again, I want to thank Jim Potts for joining us today on Murder Most Foul and want to wish you a great day, Jim. Thank you. You too. And thanks for having me again. Take care, Jim. And so, my dear listeners, we come to the end of another episode of Murder Most Foul. A little different, maybe. I don't know whether we have changed your mind one way or another about the right to counsel, but maybe we've given you something to think about. I'd like to leave you with a statement by Lord Sankey, who was a former Lord Chancellor of England, and he stated on the subject, it's not sufficient to do justice by obtaining a proper result by improper means. And now I need to point out that at the time he was talking about the use of the third degree. Well, whatever. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, I hope you tell your friends. Uh, they can learn more about the podcast and directly hook to it from the podcast's website, which is www 
Murder Most Foul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And there you can also uh, link to my email address, which will allow you to leave a comment, question, uh, maybe in a case you'd like me to look at. So in the meantime, until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. Thank you.